Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're dangerously likely to talk about Russia invading Ukraine. Shortly after recording last week, the international community was rocked by Russian President Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. In recognition of those events and the rapidly developing stories out of the region currently, um, we're going to change up the show a a little bit. Instead of our traditional roundtable above the fold stories and conversation, we're going to give some quick updates to keep you, our listeners, informed um, of the major stories happening today. But we're really going to focus on our international fold, if you will, the Russian-Ukraine war. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. In a new UN report, scientists say that global warming is outpacing our efforts to stop it. In a 3,500-page report, scientists laid out why we are running out of time and why the fragmented efforts of countries to stop contributing to global warming are currently behind the pace in which the Earth is warming. Here are some of the findings from the report, and these are directly quoted. The effects of melting glaciers and thawing permafrost in some areas are approaching irreversibility. Half the world is already living with severe water scarcity during part of the year. A worldwide rise in heat-related illness and death with more foodborne and infectious disease can be expected without adaptation. Agricultural productivity growth has slowed and the weather extremes have put millions of people's food security at risk. In land ecosystems, as many as 14% of animal species studied will likely face a very high risk of extinction at a warming level of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Let's check out the international fold. In a happier note of international stories, um, it seems China is willing to work with the U.S. on the Build Back Better World Initiative, not to be confused with the Build Back Better policies that are moving through Congress in the United States. Um, A conversation that's happening among the G7, which is a group of the richest democracies in the world, have been really intensifying and focusing on initiatives to help developing countries meet infrastructure needs um, and just further support their growth and development, something that has been seen as a counter to China's growing influence in the area. What's really important about this note is while it might have been seen as a counter to China's growing influence um, with developing countries, their willingness to work with the G7 is showing initiatives to really truly provide equitable and understandable um, infrastructure needs to countries as they begin to develop. And we'll be right back. And we're back. As Terrell mentioned before, last week, Russia invaded Ukraine and began a war of the like that Europe has not seen since World War II. So we are going to recap where we are and how we got here. After amassing nearly 200,000 troops along Ukraine's border, Russia President Vladimir Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine. It's now been about a week since the invasion began. At first, the Russian attack was not as intense as we have seen in other arenas like Syria. Russia followed a traditional strategy of bombing Ukrainian military assets throughout the country, then rolling in the ground troops. Ukraine's outgun and outmanned military has so far fought a hell of a fight refusing to let Russians take any big population centers and even succeeding in attacking Russian supply lines. There's a couple stories. Um, one of them has been verified, Snake Island. If any of you have heard about the Snake Island story, there's 
an island, um, I believe in the Black Sea, called Snake Island. And there was 13 Ukrainian border guards on it mm-hmm. in a Russian warship once the evasion began approached them and said, surrender or we will bomb this island and you. And the Ukrainian soldiers said, Russian warship, fuck off. And they all died. Um, there's another story that I believe has been debunked, but I think the rumor lives on, and that's the Ghost of Kiev. Um, the Ghost of Kiev is about a Ukrainian fighter pilot who has shot down many, many, many Russian fighter pilots and has still been going on. I think the total was 15, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and the why it might may have been debunked is because people were, were posting it on social media and stuff with a video of... of what looked like war footage, but actually wasn't. It was from like a war simulation game or something. Mm. Um, but I think it's still a rumor that's out there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and also President Zelensky has opted to stay um, behind in Ukraine instead of getting the heck out of there um, and has been giving self-recorded addresses across the capital city of Kiev. Um, and honestly, Terrell, all of this, all of these stories and rumors are... I think it's I think it's um quite a morale boost, especially yeah. for a country who is trying to protect themselves against an aggressor like Russia. Absolutely. I think to President Zelensky specifically, um, it was shared through both social media and through um, his office, I guess you could speak technically, that there were conversations and operations to potentially get him out of Ukraine, as everyone understands he is currently public enemy number one to the Russian forces. Um, And he's famously quoted as saying, I don't need um, an exit or something along those lines. I need ammunition because not only has he decided to um, stay in Ukraine and give these self-recorded addresses, he has actually taken up arms to um, fight with his people in the protection of the, the capital city. He also is fighting alongside the former and current mayor of Kiev, um, some of his cabinet too, I believe. Some of his cabinet. There was a former high-ranking uh, member of the government who now, I think, it was one of the former mayors actually, who was a boxer who has also taken to um, the country to take up arms. And you're seeing a real cult, uh, a cultification, if you will, of the Ukrainian people coming together. Um, I think it was best worded in the UN, not only to protect their country, but to protect democracy and really noticing that this is a war for democracy as a whole against an aggressor who has no place there. So now we're entering into a new phase of this war. It was clear that Russia believed Ukraine would surrender quickly, but it miscalculated that. And we're beginning to see Russia take a similar approach that it did in Syria when it invaded several years ago. They are beginning to heavily bomb population centers in residential areas with specifically vacuum and cluster bombs, which are mostly outlawed in the world. And now they have almost all their troops in Ukraine. There is a 40 mile long convoy, Russian convoy, Mm -hmm. headed to the capital city of Kiev right now, which has already seen its fair share of street fighting and bombing. If one thing is for certain, despite everything we've heard about the heroism of Ukrainians, this is about to enter a deeply ugly stage for the foreseeable future. So, uh, as you notice, it's just me and Terrell today and Torrance really wanted to be here, but you know, sometimes life gets in the way, but he gave us a, a little response because there has been so much happening and he just really wanted to make sure, um, that he had a little bit of voice in what was going on here too today, because I mean, what we're experiencing is really the change in how the world is going to look from here on out. Like 
previous 30-ish years since the Soviet Union fell to now, like it's the end of an era with this invasion. So right now, let's give Torrance the floor. Hey everyone, this is Torrance. I'm not on the episode this week, but because of everything going on in the world, I told Terrell and Caleb that I really wanted to share a voice memo um, with some of my thoughts about what's going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And specifically, um, I want to talk about the kind of language uh, that we are using to describe this crisis. I think that we keep on hearing this Russian invasion. I think that we keep hearing verbiage like the Ukraine crisis. But I think that it's very important and that words matter for us to call this the Russian invasion of a sovereign and democratic Ukraine, because I think that words matter and that we need to be very specific when we're talking about um, this crisis, because this was a war of, of Vladimir Putin's um, making. This was something that was 100% avoidable. Ukraine is a sovereign democratic nation in which they elected their president. They have had their own self-determination. And I think that uh, we devalue the power of that and the importance of that when we do not call it what it is. Um, I think that it's been a fantastic thing to watch the world rally around Ukraine. Um, and specifically, I wanted to speak to you a bit about um, the concept of democracy and the preciousness of democracy, specifically here in America. I think that we have seen uh, two things. One, I think we've seen a lot of admiration for uh, President Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine, um, because of his servant leadership that I think we've seen, his, his lack of desire to want to leave his country, his wanting to fight on the front lines um, for the sovereignty and self-determination and the freedom and democracy of Ukraine, um, as opposed to, as, as opposed to uh, you know, getting lifted out to save his own life. I think that we are deprived of such servant leadership here in America, and that's why there's such large admiration. I also think another thing in terms of democracy um, is that we have watched this the vigor of the Ukrainian people to um, respond in kind to this invasion from Russia, to fight for their freedom, to fight for their sovereignty, because they understand the preciousness of the gift. Um, as a very young democracy, I have only having only been a democracy for several decades in comparison to our 240 years of independence, um, that what we see, our admiration for their vigor, is that they understand how fragile democracy is. They understand how much hard work it is to have your freedom because of the Russian aggression that they have faced for the entirety of their um, democracy. I think that they understand that it's a lot of work. It takes civic engagement. It takes speaking up. It takes education. It takes being a savvy media consumer. It takes... Um, self-determination to understand the system in which you exist. And I think that um, this is just a reminder for us as an American people in our American democracy that this is hard work. And the, div the divisiveness that we've seen in our country, specifically along media lines, along political lines, that at the end of the day, we are in a democracy together. And that this is about the self-governance of people. Um, and to not be under authoritarian regimes like Russia. And so I just want to remind people, as we are so in, in admiration of the Ukrainian people and of their president and the way they are fighting to protect their freedoms and their democracy, that we may be reminded to not be shocked by the things that happened on January 6th, not to be shocked by the election of President Donald Trump in 2016, but to remember that our democracy is fragile and that it's hard work and it requires us to show up every day in different ways and not just look at our politics and not just look at the legislation going through our government, but to look at capitalism, to look at the powers that be and how it affects our country, to understand that the same way that the oligarchs and the uh, Putin regime in Russia are constantly stealing from their citizens and enriching themselves, that that is the same exact thing that's occurring here in, in the United States, not 
by our politicians necessarily, not by our president necessarily, but by the corporations and the capitalism that we allow to run amok and to lobby away our taxpayer dollars so that they don't have to pay in, stealing from what could be contributing to our freedom, to a more sound society, to a more sound ec economy for our future. I just think that this, is, this moment allows us the time, especially ahead of tonight's State of the, Un the Union, to remember that democracy is hard work and that we've got to be up for the fight. I think you highlighted a lot of pieces, and I know Torrance wasn't able to join us, but was able to share his comments. And I, I want to be careful not to Americanize this conversation, even though we do live here, um, because this was an attack on humanity as a global piece. This, this, the ability for the Ukrainian people to speak up and say that while we are fighting for our country, we are fighting also too for democracy, I think is so huge. And the way that they have been able to present themselves on the world stage is immaculate and so critical to the development of how we got here. Um, standing up to Russia at the UN during a uh, special security council meeting, an emergency security council meeting, excuse me, um, and really challenge their authority to sit on the security council because of lack of documentation. There's been some really amazing things that are coming from a country that I think tends to get downplayed in our media. But the reason I, I want to be cautious there, um, I do also want to lift up something that Torrance shared in his piece of the role America has played in all of this um, and also what we're seeing. Going into the start of this year, we had a U.S. president who had historically low poll numbers, which I don't think are necessarily believable, but that's for another pod. Um, but something we don't talk about enough and something that I do think is important that while he was having these debates and conversations at home, the president was intentionally and strategically and surgically even, all the leaves, if you will, building up a alliance that had been deteriorated over the last four years and finding ways to help show and, and beat the disinformation that we anticipated from Russia um, by sharing declassified information and making the call to declassify information by moving forward in having conversations with the broader alliance group, not just select partners and players in hopes that they would build enough of a, a sense of um, credibility to carry it forward. And it is hard to one argue to not be Amer American centric, but not give credit to the fact that the reason we are here today and the reason that we're going to have conversations about Russia being kicked out of SWIFT, um, conversations about Ukraine potentially joining the EU, conversations about um, Switzerland for the first time in history uh, losing their neutral status um, and actually joining these sanctions are largely in part due to the efforts that this president took um, and his belief and willingness to listen to the president of Ukraine when he called for and was asking for support. Um, and the way that this has actually surprisingly brought our country together. I think for a lot of us, it's hard to understand what bipartisanship looks like, but this specific war has led to Lindsey Graham coming out strongly against the um, Russian president and calling for, uh, shockingly from a conservative, 
calling for a more loose visa program to allow Ukrainians to come into our country. So there's just so many things to unpack here and so many amazing Mm -hmm. pieces that I I do think need to be highlighted. I don't know what would have happened without this administration. Yes, I also want to highlight, I actually think the, the, um, the Biden response to this over the last several months that um, the U.S. has had the intelligence of what Russia was probably going to do. Um, he has brought the world together. Mm-hmm. Um, he's even gotten company or companies, countries like Germany, who were opposed to sending even their own arms that were in other countries to Ukrainian forces. Mm-hmm. Um, he turned that around. He got them to also agree to to taking them out of SWIFT, taking some Russian banks out of um, SWIFT, which SWIFT is the national is a national like um, transaction network. Yeah. So if a, if a bank is cut off from that, they can't operate globally anymore. And that means they're cut off from their assets and whatnot mm-hmm. and can't make, um, um, I guess, profit making transactions around the world. A direct connection is the ruble prices in um, Russia, the rubles, their their currency jumped 20% due to this maneuver um, because the country itself has been sanctioned, not only individuals and not only specific entities, but the central bank of Russia was sanctioned by multiple countries um, across the globe, across the globe, taking them out of SWIFT has made it harder for um, Russian citizens and Russian people to pull money out of banks because they are no longer connected to the, the um, global peace and I mean, you corrected yourself in saying countries, but I would also argue that the Biden administration helped bring a lot of companies in. Elon oh Musk is a great example yeah. by bringing SpaceX to Ukraine, noticing that internet um, capabilities were lacking. Yeah, yeah. Elon Musk, if for those who haven't seen this, have uh, he has turned on his, I think, is it called Starlink? Starlink. I believe it's called, yeah, Starlink um, system in space, which allows Ukrainians to get internet still, even when it's cut off in their country. Um, and this is also, I also want to highlight Microsoft here because even before the invasion began, actually only a couple hours before, Microsoft, as, a, as big of a company that it is, noticed that there was some bad malware entering some systems and whatnot that was from Russia in leading up to the invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine. They ordered the um, intelli- U.S. intelligence agencies right away, um, and they also also got code to get rid of the malware updated like within a matter of hours, whereas even a year or two ago, I think as the president of Microsoft had mentioned, that would have taken a couple weeks to do. Um, so... So we are in a very different place to respond to this kind of stuff than we were even a year ago. And that's largely due to President Biden and his response to this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got it. So I want to talk about like, like the actual war itself. Yeah. So Russia invades Ukraine. And I kind of just wanted to get your, your take. Like, what does that, what does that mean? Like, Everyone was wrong. Well, to an extent. I mean, like we've <laughs> talked about how like great the Biden response has been. Do you think that we have a right to do, do you think that the administration um, did a good job of giving us the expectation that even though their response was really good, Russia could still do this? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I can't remember if we talked about this on the pod or just in person. All my days are kind of jumbled. So I do apologize to our listeners if I just start sounding redundant or traveling off. Um, 
It's been that kind of week. It's been that kind of week. Um, but I do think that the administration did a great job of one, not front loading. I, the administration was very honest up in front when uh, aggressive stances started to occur of we're going to unleash this level of sanctions, but we have more to come if something were to happen. I think the only space, and we've talked about this plenty, the only space that the administration truly struggled with was whether to, now we realize it wasn't a bluff, but whether to call Putin's bluff that he would truly invade Ukraine or to um, just move move forward and, and operate as if this was another Crimea situation, right? And I say that in regards to... Um, there was an option at one point in time, I genuinely believe, for Ukraine to be a part of NATO. And by making that decision for uh, the Russian government to invade the way that they have, and also their choice to bring in Belarus, um, that table has very much been taken off the table. And I don't know future ramifications that that might have, even though um, currently the EU is exploring options to extend their membership to them. Yeah. And I, I'm just like, I'm really worried. Like we've been watching like scenes from Ukraine and it's kind of weird. I, I just don't really feel like there's, and I guess in my lifetime, like, um, and, and maybe I'm wrong in some, in some respects, but it just feels like a conflict of this scale happening in Europe, which, um, hasn't happened like this inside of Europe for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like getting those images in like live updates from people on the ground there, people in Ukraine, people in Russia, even just of what's happening, like by minute, minute by minute updates and yeah. whatnot. Like it's weird going on social media and all my feed about is Ukraine. And it's just like, videos and and we have to be careful because on social media you know it's easy to you fake stuff yeah, you can't validate everything so you make sure that you're looking at stuff that is validated probably from like you know the new york times and other media organizations like that yeah. but i do think that also brings up a really good point of what war looks like in this generation right um we we've highlighted this there was an intentionality to cut off and stop disinformation in regards to this and and this is such an important point because vladimir putin's principle for moving forward is there are a group of individuals in the eastern region of ukraine who don't um what's the word i'm looking for don't align with the ukrainian government they align far closer to the russian government they would like to separate and call their independence and he made the intentional choice to say that um, this this government is not a government; it's a regime, and it's a neo-Nazi regime, yes. which has such large implications. And there was actually a really great article out of the New York Times that highlighted how Putin might have met his match in disinformation because President Zelensky is so great with social media, and and for our generation. Um, you can see that on TikTok. I've, I've been on TikTok a few times and just seen post or shared through uh, major news outlets of individuals taking to the streets and stopping a tank from coming into their city 
or um, this new phenomenon of people with tractors grabbing abandoned tanks. So you're really seeing a different version of war than I would argue we even saw in our, our formative years with 9-11 because social media plays such a huge role and because the president of Ukraine himself has used, in these, pla- has used these platforms um, to share out messages to his people, to make a call for all Ukrainians who are willing and able to take up arms to defend their country. It just has become and played such a, a massive role and has allowed for, I mean, uh, we have a share the Danish Likely account, which I'm sure many of you follow. Um, one of our feeds there is the UK, Ukrainian crisis, which is a group of validated, highlighted reporters on the ground, individuals who live in the region, sharing stories, highlighting things. Um, there's a couple of Ukrainian news outlets that are actively sharing through social media. There's an air raid warning for these regions if you are able, get to shelters immediately. So it's it's a different type of war than I think we've ever seen, especially when we're making callbacks to um, World War II, to the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. It has played a different role and it has made a bigger impact in our lives, even if we're not physically there. Yeah, and and we kind of talked about this a little bit offline, but like there's been a lot of comparisons, including myself, mm-hmm. um, of Putin justifying his invasion through the use of this rhetoric that that Ukraine is a neo-Nazi regime, just like Nazi Germany back in the day. And they have to rid Ukraine of this and it's a threat to Russia. Yeah. And they, they need to invade to 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 get rid of that for once and for all. And I think I think rightly so it has been compared to some of the rhetoric Hitler used to use to justify their invasions of places like Poland. Poland. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but I thought you had a really interesting take on all that. And so the floor You're just going to give it to me. I'm just going to give it to you. Um, one important thing to highlight as well, President Zelensky is Jewish. Um, so as the uh, the Russian president continues to tout this narrative of a neo-Nazi regime, um, it is important to recognize that not only is President Zelensky Jewish, he lost family um, in the Holocaust. So uh, important things that I feel. Um, but yeah, I I think it, it is a fair contrast to the movements and operations of Nazi Germany at the time, actually re- reminding myself of um, those actions of that regime. Um, you can call back to 2014 with Russia of annexing Crimea, very similar to Hitler's move to annex the region. Um, between what is now Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, and um, Germany as a a region where German ethnics were existing and needed to be brought into their country, and then making the move to invade Poland fully because of similar rhetoric conversations and highlighting this view that land was unjustly taken from them, which you are also hearing from Putin. But I also feel, and this is why I'm I've always been very cautious to be American centric in this. I also also feel that uh, President Vladimir Putin has used similar narratives to that of our country um, during our invasion of Iraq, of highlighting a group of people who are being oppressed, highlighting that this regime was not duly elected 
and then moving into the space that um, there are some forms of weapons that could cause grave danger to humanity. In Vladimir Putin's case, making this assumption that Chernobyl um, is that Ukraine has been stockpiling and building up nuclear weapons without alerting people. So I do also feel that there's some, some deep comparisons to things that America has done and, and Putin's kind of way. I mean, he pulled out the same section we used from the Geneva convention um, to justify our invasion of Iraq, Um, but using them in a way to kind of show off the hypocrisy that has been our country on the world stage. And, um, I don't know if we want to get into this, but I, I would even argue that his veil threats of nuclear war are kind of reminiscent and callant of that of as the only country who has ever utilized that capacity. Um, we have this tendency to take certain steps, recognize our flaws and rightfully and, and turn back and tell the rest of the international community not to take them. But I do feel that there's this posture from um, Vladimir Putin that, well, the U.S. did it and I'm going to do the same. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about um, I think that's a great segue into (laughs) this nuclear conversation because Putin has has kind of made a veiled nuclear threat a couple times now. Yeah. He first made it right when he invaded. He said, if anyone interferes, um, we will respond like you have never seen, the world has never seen before. And then immediately went into talking about their nuclear capacities. And and then he threatened something similar when Finland and Sweden were reportedly interested in joining NATO mm-hmm. um, because they're scared they might be next. Justifiably um, so. And <laughs> and then he put his his nuclear weapons kind of arsenal. in a in a, his arsenal in a in a readiness state um that we haven't really seen before and Not since the cold war yeah exactly and i guess i guess i don't know about you but for me that's i if putin was i mean the problem is is putin's a madman we don't really know what he's thinking if putin just wanted was trying to scare us away from doing stuff i mean he got me because <laughs> that's really scary. But I don't believe at this time that he will actually use nuclear weapons. Then again, I didn't believe necessarily that he would invade Ukraine. I actually really didn't know about that one. But I wanted to get your thoughts and feelings about that. These nuclear threats are pretty scary. Hmm. Have you ever watched Madam Secretary? I've been meaning to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Madam Secretary, I do believe it's season four, episode 22. Spoiler alert. If you're going to watch it, don't listen to this quick segment. We'll put something in our description to give you warning as well. Um, so you know when it does, how long to skip. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to ruin it for you. That's fine. (laughs) Um, it doesn't, it doesn't play into the broader scheme of the show. So I, I also don't feel guilty doing this, but I'm pretty sure it's season four, episode 22. Um, is exactly what's happening right now. <laughs> there is a, it, the opening scene is a um, day in the life of Madam Secretary. She gets a day off for the first time in a long time. She's going to hang out with her family. They go to a, um, a, a local arcade or something along those lines just to have fun. And then it cuts screen to, Uh, what can be defined as the department of defense or some type of military area and um, alerts start going off 
And there are alerts out of Russia specifically of their nuclear arsenal engaging. Mm-hmm. In that, the individual who's responsible for contacting and doing all the things that are necessary immediately calls the White House, alerts them to this. And you get to see the progression of, obviously it's dramatized and it's probably not completely accurate, but you get to see some idea of what the process looks like um, if the world were to go to nuclear war and if Russia were truly um, set to fire missiles at us. And it, I bring this all up because I think it, it sits with me of how I feel in regards to this. And I feel this sense of calm, which I don't know is inherent in everyone else. Um, but you watch this process of the, the president of the show really genuinely contemplate what to do. Does he return in kind? Can the defenses be scrambled quick enough to stop most of the missiles from coming and hitting us on land? All of these processes and there's this realization of we, again, the U.S., have created such a weapon that it doesn't even matter. It, once that line has been crossed, humanity is dead. And um, I don't know why, but it what I'll just fully ruin it. Long story short, you find out that it was actually a simulation that the person the night before had set up just to see how capable we were. Um, but forgot to alert the appropriate people that that simulation was happening. So people took it as reality. So we live in a simulation. Essentially. <laughs> um, but it, it brought me this calm, right? Of, yeah, I I would hope not. <laughs> I I genuinely hope and believe that one man does not feel that humanity is so invaluable that he would take those steps. However, it is not lost upon me that the only country to drop a nuke is the United States. Yeah. And it took us until 2013, 2014 to only formally half apologize to the people of that region for our actions. Yeah. And that's not a justification by any means. And I do want to clarify that. So my words aren't misconstrued, but there is that sense that that line was already crossed. And if another country took that step, there isn't much that can be done. And we've seen the ramifications of that. I do believe that the Biden administration's choices of de-escalation, de-escalation in this space of not putting us to DEFCON 3, not revving up our, our engines to really feel like we're on the precipice of this type of action was intentional and smart. Um, but I, I do take pause that um, reports have come out from multiple outlets that our intelligence agencies have shifted from really focusing on the Russian progression of their military action because they they think they have a, a decent understanding to the mental capacity of this individual who has control of Russia's nuclear codes. Um, and I know we talked off air about this, and I think it's important to bring up. There's a hope that there are individuals in Russia that can stop this man for making that decision. But at the end of the day, he has consolidated power in such a way where genuinely he is the power broker for Russia. If he says it, it's going to happen. And, and I want to pander back to you, Caleb of um, like, what are your feelings? Do you, do you feel like we now have a line in the sand that uh, I say we generally 
that NATO can't accept Finland or Sweden into um, the alliance? Do you feel like Ukraine having conversations with the European Union to join them is is walking too close to the line? Like, do you feel that that kind of provocative language has put us in a space that um, no further actions can be taken? Uh, no, but I would first like to just mention that in response to Russia um, doing this, we did not match their level of escalation when it came to nuclear weapons. Biden chose a de-escalating route. Mm-hmm. Um, this We don't know exactly everything that Russia means by um, raising it to this level, uh, but we think it's about the same as putting us in DEFCON 3, yeah. which means that we have to be, we will be ready to respond to a nuclear attack or whatnot within 15 minutes of, of seeing launches in Russia, uh, which basically means like moving aircraft and loading them with nukes and having them on the runway ready to go, yep. um, opening silos and whatnot. That's what that stuff means. Um, so yeah, it is scary. And I want to mention one last thing before we kind of move on to what I think is a really important conversation about the risk of what we're doing right mm-hmm. now. Um, is that Putin putting his level of nuclear readiness at this level increases the likelihood that a mistake could be made. Fair. Yeah. (laughs) Which is scary to think about. But moving on to your answer, your question. No, I don't think that means that Finland and Sweden couldn't be a part of NATO. Um, Same as Ukraine being accepted into the EU. I don't, I think that could still happen. Um, I really, I think what I worry about in terms of what we're doing is I think it's actually fantastic that the Biden administration has been able to so forcefully cut off Russia from the world with the EU. The EU is, is together right now. And it kind of looked like they weren't together for a long time. And now they are Mm -hmm. with this issue. And even, even things like cutting off Russian um, airliners from even operating within countries outside of Russia. Um, Russians, Russia's World Cup soccer team can no longer play in the qualifiers for the World Cup, so they will not be it's in the World Cup. Huge move. I mean, it's huge. It's not. It's not the NFL suspending a team for five games. It's it's being suspended for over four years yeah. from the World Cup, which and, is massive for any country. Yeah, and something else important to highlight there. Sorry, I cut you off. Um, Eurovision has suspended Russia from participating. And I know, again, we're highlighting these pieces, but where where Europe is, that is such a pivotal space where um, I would almost equate it to the Olympics, where every country has an opportunity to be on this world stage and show their talent off and and just really kind of rejoice in this um, Eurocentric understanding. And for Eurovision to take the steps to um, not only hinder them from applying, but completely disqualifying any Russian from participating in, in that and also not showing it in Russia, I think speaks to that exact point of it's it feels different. It is touching every aspect of our lives. It's not just the economic sanctions that everyone was saying, well, will they actually work? You are really, <laughs> you're seeing this iron curtain fall again, but it, it feels thicker and and harder um, to really show that these types of behaviors cannot be allowed in the modern era. 
I, I think that my worry though with this response is like obviously the hope is that the Russian people turn against Putin in the government and something good comes out of this. And there has been protests, but I was listening to um, a Financial Times reporter who's been in Russia for several years now reporting on things from Russia. And and he was saying that it's really hard, even with a few thousand people in, in a lot of cities in Russia protesting, it's really hard to gauge what the mood is in Russia in terms of the populace and what this is. And most of them are being arrested. Um, yeah. But my my worry is what the risk of this is. Because situations in the past in which we have put countries into deep isolation from the rest of the world has been a good breeding ground for something worse. And I, here I go again, my mind goes back to Nazi Germany and Hitler rose up in a similar situation. It's not the same. It's not the same, but there are parallels. And I, I guess you could make an argument that he, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if that means it's someone different than Putin. I don't know if that means Putin gets more erratic and irrational. Um, but that I, personally for me, my worry is that this goes beyond what Ukraine is because of the isolation. Mm-hmm. But at, right now it feels like the isolation, like there's, it's a hard decision to make because you can't just sit there and let this stuff happen because then Russia would take everything. Yeah. Um, so I think the response has been appropriate for the moment. Yeah. And I think that's a key distinction between Nazi Germany and, um, what we're seeing now. Uh, I think there are a lot of arguments around appeasement and this feeling that we were repeating the past. However, there hasn't been appeasement. There has not been this global acceptance of the fact that Russia could just take Ukraine. Um, But also speaking to the Ukrainian people, I think Russia assumed that things would be very similar to what Hitler saw in Poland of we're going to go in their army is not strong enough. We'll take them quickly. And by the time anyone can respond, it's already over. And, and it's not there. That's a huge miscalculation that I genuinely don't think the Russian military, the Russian government um, had planned for or asserted. I mean, when you're hearing reports that Russian soldiers are being captured in their 19-year-old guys who the Ukrainian military allows them to call their moms and their parents have no idea that it's happening. And these Russian soldiers don't really know what they're doing. These early conscripts, you can tell that they thought it was going to be a quick and swift victory with minimal casualties. And now they're in too deep and don't want to pull out because that's weakness. Exactly. And important to that note as well is the fact that the reason Ukraine is alerting Russian families as well is because Russia is not taking the initiative to alert families or individuals of their country for prisoners of war, deaths, anything of that nature. And uh, there was another report out of, I want to say, either Reuters or um, Wall Street Journal that highlighted families are being shocked, just as you mentioned, Caleb, by these alerts because they weren't even fully aware that their children were fighting in this war or had been sent. Um, And then social media is even, again, playing into this as you're seeing Russian troops raid local um, uh, shopping centers and um, convenience stores because they're already running out of food, um, you are seeing a lot of miscalculations on the hands of the Russian government. Exactly. 
and we'll be right back. And we're back. So to wrap up the episode, we're going to not necessarily go on tangents, but wrap kind of wrap up this conversation quickly here and then highlight some organizations in which you can help support Ukraine. Um, I actually wanted to highlight something that really frustrated me that I saw from reporter Richard Engel, which a lot of people know about or know him. He's... Um, a reporter that usually goes into war zones and a lot of dangerous places in the world and reports. Mm-hmm. And uh, he tweeted the other day uh, about the 40 mile, 40 mile long convoy that um, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that's headed to Kiev right now, the capital city of Ukraine. He said, quote, perhaps the biggest risk calculation slash moral dilemma of the war so far, a massive Russian convoy is about 30 miles from Kiev the US NATO could likely destroy it but what but that would be a direct involvement against Russia and risk everything does the west watch in silent as it rolls and i really hate that tweet because because you really make it seem it, it's bigger than that right if mm-hmm. we get involved it really could be a nuclear war and we're all dead right but also we're not watching silently on the sidelines we're we're his, this is the most historic economic warfare we have ever performed along with the rest of the world against a country. Yeah. And that's not silence. I just don't like the sentiment that we're reporting on, on things. We're reporting as if military intervention is the end all be all of how you solve problems yeah. versus literally any other decision that isn't war. So that's my tangent slash wrapping up the conversation here. I know there's also been similar um, um, reporters kind of being a little bit racist in how they're referring to Ukraine and Europe compared to like Afghanistan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you would want to touch on that. Yeah, um, I appreciate you bringing that up because I I definitely think it should not be lost on our listeners that you will start seeing the Warhawks pop up. Um, you will start hearing the silent beat of a drum because there, there is genuinely a feeling of no one truly knows what's coming next. And uh, that's a a scary thing to hear, but um, no one understands where this is going because I, I would argue Putin doesn't understand where this is going. Um, but something that I want to kind of highlight to also wrap up, I do appreciate that this has brought together every form of community. Um, I don't know if all of our listeners are aware, but Anonymous, which is a um, organization of hackers, have declared war on Russia. They have um, released plane manifestos. They've taken over government websites from Russia. They have released um financial information they have done all the work possible to really truly play a key role and help disrupt um, a lot of the plans that the russian government has and then even beyond that um, we've seen a lot of reports out of ukraine that there is some sentiments of racism and and segregation if you will um a focus on a focus on 
the Ukrainian people being protected, but not necessarily people of color being protected. And that's not to deteriorate or hinder the facts that these are important. And there are uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees immigrating to Poland, to surrounding areas like um, the Maldives or uh, Moldova, um, Lithuania, so forth and so on. Uh, but it is important to see the intersectionalities that come out of this. And it is important to call that out of um, while there is a response that's happening, it is still not equitable. And with all that, um, if you're interested in supporting Ukraine, supporting the people of Ukraine, um, I want to give a shout out to NPR for doing some background research for me and highlighting some really important organizations that you can donate to or connect with, such as Doctors Without Borders, Voices of Children, which is a Ukrainian organization that provides psychological and um, psychosocial support for children affected by armed conflict. Sunflower of Peace, which is also a nonprofit organization raising money specific to first aid medical tactical backpacks um, for paramedics and doctors on the front lines. Not highly highlighting the Red Cross because we have our own issues with them. Um, but I am going to highlight one last organization, Save the Children, which is based out of London, but helps to deliver life-saving aid to vulnerable children in Ukraine and around the world. Um, all of these are great organizations. You can also always support um, groups like the UN Refugee Agency. Um, CARES is another Ukraine um, is another organization that has developed a specific Ukraine fund that provides food, water, hygienic kits, things of that nature. Um, for all information regarding that, be sure to check out our social medias and we will be sharing them. Also, don't forget to follow us on our social medias at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerouslylikely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. I'm Terrell. I'm Caleb. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.